0: Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology. My name's Chad Kim. Uh, This week I'll be talking with uh, Dr. Tiffany... Eberly Kreiner. Um, Dr. Kreiner has written In Thought, Word, and Seed, Reckonings from a Midwest Farm uh, with Erdman's Press, so we're grateful to the press for providing a copy of this book, Um, as well as Dr. Kreiner for her beautiful prose um, in this uh, reflective uh, sort of memoir um, and set of essays that think about the overlap between what she is seeing in society uh, from the point of view of her new farm, uh, Root and Sky Farm, uh, just outside a Chicago, and so it has some sort of theological themes. It has some literary themes. Um, it's a little bit different than our sort of typical scholar interview um, in that it's not about a specific theolog, uh, histor, theolo- like historical theological figure um, or ancient uh, Christian author, which is usually what we focus on. Uh, but of course. Uh, Listeners will know that I do uh, love to interview people who have connections to farmer to farms and farming. Uh, so we have other episodes with Paul Hinlicky um, and uh, Jacob Wood. Uh, as well on these kind of topics. Uh, but but I'm grateful to Dr. Kreiner for entertaining my questions, some of them very specific about life on her farm, and then others about her writing, her writing style, um, and how that overlaps with her theological outlook. So this is a, a very fun um, and kind of different interview for us. Um, so thank you again to Dr. Kreiner. Uh, we do have lots of episodes uh, lined up for the podcast. Um, and so uh, just hope you will keep listening, uh, you know, Download, subscribe, um, rate, review us on iTunes, um, as well as check out our Patreon. We have a lot going on on our Patreon, um, and so I think, uh, you know, listeners, regular listeners can really benefit from um, following us on there and perhaps donating, uh, so you can listen to the special episodes that we'll be releasing. An upcoming one on Purgatory uh, is, is in the uh, lineup, so thanks for listening. Without any further ado, here's my conversation with Tiffany Kreiner. Uh, So here we are. Uh, Yeah, so welcome to A History of Christian Theology. Today I'll be talking with uh, Dr. Tiffany Eberly kreiner who has written uh, the book In Thought, Word, and Seed, Reckonings from a Midwest Farm. Um, And so we're grateful to Erdman's uh, publishing company for providing me a copy. And Dr. Kreiner is the professor of English at Wheaton College. Um, And she also heads a few different other things she was telling me beforehand, uh, but primarily uh, an English teacher. But the thing that actually... Uh, is the most interesting maybe to me in combination with this book is her time spent on her Midwest farm. Um, and so as listeners will be aware, I've talked with a few other people uh, about farming on the podcast. And so that was my, my secret agenda was also to hear a little bit of her experience um, on her farm. So hopefully we'll get uh, to, to dig into her book, uh, but also hear about uh, her experiences. So thank you, Dr. I'm Preiner. delighted to be here. So as I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, Dr. Kreiner is um, yeah, so she's you know tenured faculty at Wheaton, um, and as you read through this book and Thought Word and Seed, uh, you you hear a little bit. Um, about her coming to a a farm, um, her and her husband uh, started a farm. I think some of the stuff that I've pieced together uh, several years ago, um, and um, and so this was fairly new to them both. Um, but um, but but have have gone into it a uh, whole hog, I guess we might say, yes, right?
1: All several <laughs> hogs, in fact. Yes, yes. Wow. Well, <laughs> so um, after I got tenure at Wheaton and published my first book. Um, I thought maybe, gosh, I kind of owe my husband a lot of <laughs> credit for all the support he gave me. And so he was interested in looking into farming. And so we began our search, oh gosh, pretty soon after that to find a farm we could move to. And now we have 63 acres in Northern Illinois and We have made it into, by God's grace, Root and Sky Farm. Uh, It's kind of half woods and half fields. And we have pigs and sheep and cows and ducks and chickens, turkeys uh, from time to time in season. uh, (laughs) So it's an incredible blessing to, to live in.
0: Yeah. And and also, you have uh, – well, I guess since we're talking about the farm for a minute, you also have a connection to a famous uh, beekeeper, right? At one yeah. time, maybe one of the lo- like best-known beekeepers in the world.
1: Absolutely. So uh, the, the thing that really turned uh, the tables or, or really made this particular property super interesting to me personally was that we discovered that the great 19th century beekeeper, C.C. Miller, who at one time – produced more honey than anyone in North America and who wrote many books about beekeeping, lived here and built this house and raised bees here. I mean, there's even stories about um, when he passed away, the National Beekeeping Association held their annual meeting in Madison, Wisconsin, and they made a pilgrimage down here and had tea on the lawn uh, with his widow and it was just an amazing, an amazing story for me to encounter and to think about this cellar full of bee boxes all winter. And thinking about that story and legacy made me really inspired.
0: Yeah. So you live in the house that he lives in. That's right.
1: That's right. Um drafts oh. and all, I'm freezing <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, we're expecting quite a cold snap in St. Louis, I know. I'm sure it's probably much colder yeah, up there. Yeah, I think we're
1: hitting negative seven on Saturday, so.
0: <laughs> Oof. Um, and, well, one of the – so, there, you know, there's so much in this book. So the, the book itself is kind of your – Exploration of different portions of the field, different sort of stages of your um, time at the farm, Uh, and you know, some some places, uh, you know, you're you're in the hidden five, um, and it sounds like you're also trying to recover the property a little bit from um, uh, it it kind of gone into um, disarray and and uh, entropy had taken its course. So at one point, the farm was was flourishing with bees. Um, and then I guess, the, how, how long had it been since it had been a very, pretty active farm when you guys took it over? Well,
1: the, some of the land was in cultivation before we moved in, but it was in conventional corn and soy uh, production, the, uh, the sort of 15 mm. acres of uh, conventionally farmed fields. And then there was pretty overgrown uh, forest with, you know, overgrown with invasive species like honeysuckle. Um, and so, um, so we turned over all the regularly farmed uh, fields into pasture land uh, without any chemicals um, and we're working with sheep to work on the invasive species in the woods um, they eat the honeysuckle as they travel around and um, so we're kind of we're working on that project a little bit together but to to sort of respond to your description of the book yeah we, it's kind of a making one's way across or around the property bit by bit, each chapter, a different location on the farm and a different place to ask and seek answers to theological questions in conversation with literary texts and with the land itself. And so uh, contextualized theology, I guess, (laughs) Um, concretely (laughs) uh, in that way.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think uh, maybe here we could... um... Uh, cut into one of the passages so from chapter one um called the field uh you quote uh well, towards the end, actually, you quote some stuff from Virgil's Eclogues, um, or excuse me, Georgics, um, and uh, so Virgil is some. of My I don't know if my guests know this exactly, but like you know, uh, but I do. Uh, I end up teaching some courses on classical Latin, so I'm getting ready to teach Virgil, so I'm very excited. Uh, so I have just been reading the Eclogues uh, over the winter. Um, hadn't read. I actually haven't read the the full Georgics. Um, But you quote uh, Virgil from the Georgics, um, and just before that, I'll I'll read your introduction. Uh, You say, maybe farming handbooks have always been about more than farming. Farming is as good as any way to talk about being in the world. Both writer and farmer want, need to do the right thing. So Virgil prays, grant me the right to enter upon this bold adventure of mine, grant that I make it through, pitying me along with those farmers who need to be taught to find their way and grant that we may come into your presence with our prayers. Uh, so I thought maybe uh, you could just sort of talk a little bit about like, what is what, why is farming such a good uh, place to think about being in the world?
1: Well, you know, honestly, I you were sort of interested in the uniqueness of farming in the questionnaire you sent out earlier. And I have to say that I don't, as a, as a believer, as a person who's interested in making uh, true statements about God and living in response to those, I can't say that farming has to be unique. I actually think that anywhere mm. in the world is a great place to ask and answer questions about God to the extent that we can. Uh, and so I can't claim unique specialness. I can only say <laughs> that, um, you know, this has been for me a place to pay attention. Uh, and so the maybe it was the newness of it. Maybe it was a chance to be super close to trees, especially maybe it was a chance to be um, just encountering a new fresh set of problems, right? Very different from my academic problems. But the, that has been, uh, a chance to pay attention, which I think is why Virgil comes to mind as an interlocutor here. Uh, he writes in the Georgics, right. That the sun gives us signs, signs we can follow indisputable signs. Right. And he's looking into all these different areas, uh, pay attention. He says, consider this and you will know what's going to happen. You will know what to do. And, um, you know, he has a different worldview than me in some ways, but that, that was a set of instructions I could follow. And I really needed advice in this new venture. I really needed a way to approach it. Um, and so that idea of paying attention, of seeing meaning in the close observations of animal life, of plant life, and so on was a great was a great guide in that inquiry. Oh,
0: Yeah, and it sounds like – so again, sort of reading through uh, – these are just things that I collected as I was reading through your book. The previous book that you wrote was your primary tenure uh, book, or was it this one? Yeah,
1: that was my tenure book, uh, The Future of the Word.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah the future of the word and so I was just thinking you know in my kind of the cycles that I've been going through basically since I've been in PhD work and I'm not long outside of it um is like every May or June I I wanted to do something like for like a month nothing that had anything to do with what I had just spent the last year doing um and so that was actually we got chickens like four years ago um and just like I built their coop and I played with the chickens and that was all all I wanted to do. And it felt like that there was a good, uh, you talked about paying attention uh, just a moment ago and, and Virgil's call to pay attention. Um, and it seemed like it was helpful for me at least to break up the sort of, um, you know, all the time that I spent in books, uh, you know, banging away on a keyboard, uh, just to be totally outside and paying attention to so- something totally different uh, was a necessary break for me. I wondered, it seemed like that may have been something that you were kind of capturing in this balance of the farm life and your academic life. Oh,
1: I, I can't deny it. Um, I remember really clearly when I started to build the, the waddle fence that makes the kind of frame for the last chapter of the book, I was very much, I was heading outside like uh, during or after a A Zoom faculty meeting, um, and I just needed to kind of escape into this really physical labor. So I think there's something of that. But I can't deny that as a person with multiple vocations and so many interests in the world, usually I'm trying to bring things together. So um, Mm. in some ways, I found the farming work itself really interesting and challenging to the literary studies that I'm engaged in on a regular basis. So for example, if I was going to uh, write another book and if if, um, I was going to be thinking about uh, the farming work that I had just begun, well, what difference does it make to read a literary text in a certain place, uh, from I mean, we all, mm. we know that it does matter, right? Different persons from different social, economic locations, cultural locations read books really differently and excitingly so. But I wanted to really pay attention to what that might mean in a farming context, right? So in this land that has these kinds of invasive species, that has this kind of history. Um, of kind of native engagement that that has this kind of history of beekeeping, of uh, entropy, or whatever, right? Um, (laughs) How does that impact my reading of Charles Chestnut, of James Baldwin, of Walt Whitman, of Augustine, right? Um, Can we be helped by the land itself, by the location itself to find, to develop, to grow, meanings of literary texts and i think yes so not so much escape as much right in some ways um illumination through uh, a kind of jointure which is a very liberal arts thing for me to say i realize oh all the, oh, the disciplines help each other right <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, and I, I just, the, I guess I was also thinking of the, you know, the Benedictine maxim aura at Labora, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is that sort of prayer and work. Um, and uh, and usually that was in the field as I, as I understand it. So I've never been a Benedictine mm-hmm. monk. I guess I've been on a Benedictine monastery, mm-hmm. but um, it, it does have a natural um, unity mm-hmm. to it. Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, Oh, and I know one thing that you just mentioned there about being in a particular place, um, and how that shapes your reading, uh, You've already mentioned honeysuckle. You've mentioned, and and there was a few places I think in the wattle section where you named all of the different uh, plants that you were the invasive species, the species that you were, you know, like when you wanted a certain kind of, uh, I guess silvo pasture was what you guys were working on. But I was also thinking about like when you read the eclogs, one of the most difficult things for um, someone who maybe even has a pretty good knowledge of Latin is all the very specific names for all the plants, yeah. uh, or all the different kinds of trees. Um, and I, ju- I've just noticed that, that you also in your work, like name all the different species of tree or owl or, you know, whatever you're working with. And, uh, and on the one hand, it gives it a kind of texture, I guess. Uh, but why is it that, do you think that like th- getting those names, right, that there's something about that that's, um, just, yeah, makes it, it makes it so particular, I guess. Well,
1: you know the difference between someone sort of telling you that you, their love are like a rose, right? Okay, great. It's a common image. It's used over and over again, et cetera. But if you sort of chose a very particular kind of rose to compare your beloved to, or, or your beloved uh, compared you to a very specific kind of rose, a peace rose, pale yellow with just a blush of pink in just this particular way that blooms and this has this particular fragrance that has a little, a little darkness to it or whatever, right? There's something super important about the intensification of detail that makes the meaning mm-hmm. just explode in power and beauty right like i would feel loved if i was compared to a peace rose i would <laughs> if i was compared to a rose i'd be like well okay you know uh so that <laughs> kind of specificity is, is a way of knowing right a way of learning yeah better or trying to care right we go around the farm sometimes and uh, we're new to farming so we have we have had to learn again and again okay what's this and we're bringing apps and books and things into the field Ah, that's (laughs) woman's aster okay different kind of aster um just to think through um and become familiar now i know very well the beginnings of a multiflora rose another invasive now i know really well the shape of um a walnut tree as its beginning as opposed to um an ash and so there's i didn't know those things before never did you know Uh, and so familiarity breeds this kind of particularity breeds a kind of love um and i hope meaningfulness Mm -hmm. so yeah
0: yeah yeah, that's that, that. No, that's it's very helpful, and I think there is something kind of um, I, I'm sure it's romantic in a way, but but just knowing a place so well, right? That you you can pick out every individual species. I think many of us, you know, uh, I guess I mean we're having a conversation over uh, the internet uh, that will be released as a podcast. Um, you know, most of us spend our times uh, not in 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 a natural environment where we get to know something that well or know a person that well Um, so it it does uh maybe maybe that's why i I find it kind of appealing as a i mean i'm a suburban kid i you know i was um i was actually raised not far from here but um but yeah we you know we didn't spend a lot of time outside my dad used to have to um you know really prod me to get me to mow the lawn um and and now i'm like oh that would be so great to have a huge lawn Uh, but yeah anyway well
1: i do think it's a kind of a long long process or a process rich with possibility i guess i should say because i don't feel like i know every species by any means we had our first environmental studies intern this fall and my husband talked about the first walk they took in the woods and she identified 30 different varieties of mushroom on, on the walk and we were like this is amazing wow. let's do this all day <laughs> Uh, And so when our guests come, and I hold it a great privilege to know biologists like Kristen Page, who sort of come out, tell me important things, the difference between, um, you know, a black oak and red oak acorns and the slouchy caps and so forth. And this, you know, this burl on this particular goldenrod is where a chickadee ate the worm out. And, you know, those little moments stick in my memory, but You know, everybody who comes has a little piece of wisdom to offer about things. And so I'm grateful for I'm grateful for all that and consider myself just always a learner, always a learner.
0: Yeah, well, um, so I guess I'll kind of shift gears a little bit here. Uh, One of the other things that I wanted to talk about you, you. I think it's – yeah, it's chapter two called Grass, Um, and this takes place in uh, The Hidden Five, uh, which is a portion of your property. Uh, But you um, basically are uh, writing letters to James Baldwin, Um, and so I thought maybe – uh you could talk a little bit i mean i think this goes through the the book isn't all sort of romanticism of the farm there there's a lot of of hard struggling uh that you do with uh as you're trying to think through what's going on in american culture so it sounds like most of this is written in 2020 2021 mm-hmm. um maybe a little before that even um and so you know there's there was just uh there was covid there was uh black lives matter protests there was the um uh, Mike well Michael Brown you mentioned but George Floyd mm-hmm. Michael Brown's close to where uh, actually it's where my parents yeah. grew up um, but um, yeah so just there's a lot of stuff going on so you're struggling through um, you know not only the the social currents uh, but also the extreme difficulty of running a farm and I guess even while you were uh, working through the farm your your husband has gotten sick so I don't know just say a little could you talk a little bit about um, you know what why it was helpful to, to compose letters to James Baldwin, Baldwin through all this. Well, sure
1: thing. Um, I mean, so of course the premise of the book is to kind of bring literary texts into the space of the farm or to see how they might read in particular ways. Um, and as I was beginning work on this chapter and thinking about the space of the Hidden Five, which is a field that has no access to the road, um, just surrounded by trees, but a kind of still rectangular field with its own... Uh, gorgeousness and character. Um, I began to feel the isolation of that space in uh, in a time when the United States was deeply embroiled. Still is, of course, but um, this sort of racial reckoning. So, how you know? How does one consider one's own position in that that time and space? Um, isolate on a farm, separated from COVID in some ways, right? Just um, dist- socially distance in a 63 acres worth of social distance, right? Uh, so, so much kind of privilege in a way far in some ways from um, big, say, demonstrations or big actions in Chicago and so on. Um, so some senses of difficulty there. And yet the experiment was um, an and sort of required to be it really I had to sort of figure out okay here we are it's 2020 um I'm here on a farm what do I do and it seems to me I had been reading James Baldwin seriously for a number of years but had been reading his entire uh, kind of run of works in preparation for teaching a class and it occurred to me um while reading him, that he was the one with whom I most wanted to have this conversation. Baldwin and I were both raised in Pentecostal backgrounds. um, And I remember reading his Go Tell It on the Mountain in graduate school and feeling this utter sense of recognition of shared uh, experience of church and so on. So I knew that um, we had some background in common, and i also knew that from reading baldwin that he as a literary thinker as a as an essayist was absolutely unflinching prophetic and powerful in his uh diagnosis his warnings prophetic warnings uh to the united states um and yet not without mercy in his way of approach and so his I remember this one part from his book, No Name in the Street, which is a memoir of, uh, in part of the civil rights movement. He was talking about being in San Francisco this one time with a whole bunch of students. And he was saying, you know, I didn't see any flower children when I was in San Francisco. I only saw eager, anxious students, uh, anxious to know what they could do. And he lists this giant long paragraph of all their questions. Um, is this a good idea? Is that, what what happens if we try this? How do we handle our elders and what they think about race? How do we move forward, et cetera? And those questions were questions that my students have, questions that I have and so on. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's taking this time to really list out of memory all of the questions that these students had um, and the stakes of those questions. And he says, he has this line where he says, real questions can be absurdly phrased and probably can be answered only by the questioner and at that only in time. But real questions, Mm -hmm. especially from the young, are very moving. And I will always remember the faces of some of those children. Uh, That kind memory of those students, that acknowledgement of the absurdity, ridiculousness, possibly even offensiveness of some of the questions uh, that they were asking made me think, golly, you know, I, I could both answer the questions myself, questions can only be answered by the questioner in time, he says, but with him, next to him. Uh, and so his work became a way to, as I brought it into the space of the field, um, bega- became a way to think through some of the questions. And that was especially meaningful and moving, I think, when I was asking also alongside the land itself right which had for a long time uh been in significant states of injury right uh and so there, there there was a sort of shared sense of weariness I guess between Baldwin and um the land itself and yeah so I found it a fruitful conversation I guess
0: yeah that's uh I, I don't have to teach theo so we sometimes at SLU I teach these classes. Um, they, they are a required theology class. Um and we've changed it to God talk, God talk ultimate questions. Mm-hmm. Um but what that that image that you were just using of James Baldwin reminds me of uh, a portion of the autobiography of Malcolm X. Um and he has a woman he's speaking at a college and he has a white woman come up to him and ask him a similar sort of question. Um, and and he waves her off in dismissal and says uh well you know like what does a white woman have to do uh, how can a white woman help a black man in this struggle except for by not getting in the way or something yeah. um and it's it it just is a it's like a pretty dismissive scene um and uh you know, some of my students sort of laughed knowingly uh, who are, who are, who are black or African-American, you know, and, and, but it, but I wonder, you know, the, the way that you describe that from Baldwin is, has a much more sort of charitable uh, posture. Um, It'd be interesting to contrast those uh, kind of those scenes. Um, But it also reminds me that we read um, from Ellie Wiesel night and, and at night begins with this idea of the question and, and the, he says, yeah, I think the line is something like the power of the question is lost in the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, uh, and I try to, I actually use the, I use the quote from Elie Wiesel's night as a way to frame the whole class. Um, you know, the point of this, of the exercise of this class isn't necessarily to give you all the answers, but it's to ask you to help better or to help you to ask better questions. Um, and it strikes me that it would be interesting to include the James Baldwin alongside that. Um, Mm -hmm. because, you know, one of the things that we sort of discuss is, uh, the, what do we do with race um race and religion race in america um and that's a that's a big portion of 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 uh one of our sort of units in the class well you
1: know i hear you and i'm with you in many ways um but a few things i want to sort of just Two on a little bit more there. One is that Baldwin, while charitable, right? There's a famous icon painting of him, um, and photograph of him with a banner, "God is love," right? Um, right underneath, uh, underneath him or above him as he's at the pulpit, um, and sort of the sort of bemusement of that kind of idea, right? Like on the one hand, super charitable, but on the one hand, but on the other hand, unflinching, right? James Baldwin is a good mm-hmm. interlocutor for me because he takes sin really seriously. He does not say, Mm -hmm. oh, you get a free pass. He does not say any of that. Right. Like he's going to say this is messed up. And the the crime of America is its innocence. And I will not forgive them for that. And right. uh, So that's James Baldwin wasn't only a choice because of his mercy for me. He's a choice for me because Mm -hmm. he does not say, oh, you're fine. Nothing happened. It's fine. Right. He doesn't let anything go. Yeah. Um, And I want, I want honesty. I want a real reckoning. In that field, in the streets of the town where I live, it's got to be for real. And in some ways about answering questions, you know, there are some ways of thinking, you know, the questions that we ask and answer about God are so difficult. Literature helps us because language itself is made too small for the great God that who is the word, and yet, right? Um, but... There are some questions, like what is sin and what you do with it, that we really need answers to that we can work with and work Mm -hmm. through. And so, in that chapter, especially um, on the question of sin um, that I was asking in that field. I wanted to ask literature, ask uh, scripture, um, ask the field, ask James <laughs> Baldwin, ask around, we'll find some answers <laughs> to the question. This is a collective giant uh, historical sin that's bigger than one person can say sorry for. Uh, and saying sorry is not enough. And so what should, could one do? And, And so even though I want to absolutely revel in the questions, this one needs some answers. And so I hope that, you know, I'm working through a complicated essay form, through um, scripture, through uh, literature, and through this conversation with James Baldwin toward, I hope, a more uh, sophisticated hemartiology, but usable, right? (laughs) Usable hemartiology. So I'll stop there
0: yeah well i I appreciate it i'm sorry i didn't mean to i i've read go tell it on the mountain uh but that's the only thing i've read from baldwin um (laughs) actually uh i took i noticed you quoted yolanda pierce towards the end i took a class on american religion and literature uh with dr pierce when i was at princeton seminary um and that was the first time i had read baldwin or malcolm x or uh, a lot of this stuff and um i i i I don't know, I don't know if I should say this on the podcast or something. I weirdly find maybe it's because I'm sort of vaguely familiar with Martin Luther King um you know just cuz like a lot of Americans are, but I find Malcolm X maybe more compelling um recently um and I I don't know if it's just the sort of utter conviction uh, but there like I think also what you were talking about is the seriousness with which he takes things. He doesn't want to let you off the hook um so easy um so that you can feel better about yourself. So sometimes I I actually Actually kind of like teaching uh malcolm x and we don't really spend much time with martin luther king um and it, it you know many people uh like me are probably less familiar with malcolm x um so that's also nice but but there is a sort of um unrelenting uh quality to uh to malcolm x's story mm-hmm. Indeed. um all right let's see so um one thing that um <laughs> one question that I, I ask, and this is just going to kind of, uh, I, I use it as a way to kind of change gears. Uh, also, um, it, it gives a little window or a picture uh, into the people that I'm talking with. Um, so, I like to ask people, what is one thing that you once thought was true and now think is false? Um, basically, or, or fa- one thing that you once thought was false and now think is true. It's a way to kind of say, like, what are things that you've changed your mind on and, and what makes you, uh, what makes a person change their mind, especially scholars who speak spend a lot of their time uh, reading lots of different works and thinking, you know, deeply about questions. Um, And so it, it, like I said, it, it can be about, you know, sometimes it's about research for a book. Uh, Sometimes it's about bigger things. Um, Scott McKnight was on here and he, I think he talked about uh, women in ministry was a big question for him as a, as a child that he's changed his mind on. Um, and, but you know, so anything—it's uh, a—it's an open-ended question. Just so we can get a, a sense of how you th- you think and and what um, what makes you change your mind.
1: Uh, I love that question, and I love that our minds change. I love that mercy that we can uh, change. It's funny; my entire vocation is in part related to a mind change. I remember in high school, well, honestly, from the earliest time that I could read. I read uh, primarily as a way to escape into other worlds and to in some ways escape bodily pain. I had uh, childhood cancer and so on. Um, And so I did a lot of escaping with reading and believed really significantly in the idea of absorption. Um, I remember asking in, maybe it was senior year English class, why can't we just read it? why do we need to study it? I mean, like, I actually literally said that, why can't we just read it? Uh, And of course, you know, my mind changed entirely. Um, I remember the moment of studying with Ed Blankman, our school librarian, um, when we read The Great Gatsby together, he brought What for me, it seemed like the first time I was deeply engaged in the scholarly debate on symbolism and so on in the text, he brought it to life in this amazing way that gave me so much thrill and a sense of developing power and meaning um, that I got hooked, my mind was changed and my whole, gosh, my whole life was changed from that. But it's, I mean, that's part of the excitement of growing up, right, of being a learner. Uh, There's this poem, by Lucille Clifton called Heaven. And it goes, mm. uh, it sort of sets up the scene where her brother is crouched in the heaven in a sort of, you know, an imagination of heaven that is like clouds and angelly people or whatever, right? <laughs> so it's a, you know, a, a funny vision of what heaven is, but uh, the poem starts with her brother kind of leaning down um, and talking to his friends in heaven uh, and pointing down at his sister Um, And the poem ends, she was my sister, I feel him say, even when she was right, she was wrong. (laughs) And I, I honestly feel like my process of growing up, that happens so many times. That's the attainment of wisdom, right? Like is uh, through time, our ideas significantly transform and develop Um, what we thought was not valuable. We come to look at and come to see is valuable. This happens with our sort of unlove of persons to our love of persons, to subjects, right? Um, So uh, I think we're all about the mind changing, honestly, all about it. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well that that was that's a, that's the be- one of the oh, better I'm answers, sure. maybe the best answer. I like it. Yeah, I, that was great. Um yeah. Uh so much so much to chew on. Um excellent. Uh well, one uh yeah. Um one thing that I I did um, I as I told you kind of before as we were talking um, I it, it, you know it's just I get drawn to the people that that I tend to know mm-hmm. well uh, so Plotinus and um, and Augustine uh, Plotinus being a big influence on Augustine tangentially maybe. Uh, there's, you know, debates about exactly how exact how much he knew of Plotinus and in what you know what form. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, um, one of the things about Plotinus that I think is an interesting contrast, and I think this is probably one of the reasons that you are a little skeptical of his ideas, is, uh, you know, we we've been talking a lot about sort of uh, you've talked about a hamartiology, a, a, a study of sin that takes um, that has sort of, um, I don't you know. Pe- I want to say practical benefit, but that sounds weird. Um, it has some real world payoff, um, that, that sort of, um, you know, is, is embodied in a certain way to use that cliche and Plotinus, uh, defines beauty as almost the opposite. Um, and, um, you know, uh, so as you put it, uh, he, his his is an objective uh, view of beauty. Things are beautiful to the extent that they conform to the ideal and the pattern. Um, but you, I, I like this. You said he seems to get ugliness pretty uh, right on, right? Uh, he seems to get ugliness just right. Suppose a soul to be ugly, ill-disciplined and unjust, full of cravings and all kinds of disturbance in the midst of fears because of cowardice and of jealousies because of petty-mindedness. Um and it, and it kind of goes on from there. But um, you were, you're describing the um, – you c- come across this owl who's sick and who's in pain. And, and the ugliness from Plotinus seems to, seems to capture that. So could you say a little bit about kind of your uh, you know, treatment of Plotinus there maybe or, or exactly why he was helpful in thinking about this owl? Well,
1: so the, the idea of beauty has always bothered me a little bit. Um, the idea of beauty as this kind of perfection and golden means and laws of thirds—I don't—I don't even know all of the the ways uh, to conceive of, of beauty, but it's been a problem for me because it seems like the the landscapes that are so close to me are ones that are ones conceived of as conventionally less beautiful. So, um, mm-hmm. anybody who spent time in prairie feels the power and glory of them but oh what's the the standard of beauty is a mountain right um uh, and if we think about a person's beauty and uh, um american beauty standards for women in particular really intense and difficult for women to (laughs) try to live up to they end up hurting themselves to live up to that conception of beauty and so there's this kind of have a problem with I guess I have a problem with beauty and so when I came across this owl um, who was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen uh but so hurt and the only way that I could actually see the owl was because it was hurt it wouldn't have been visible to Mm -hmm. me it has a different way of life it has a different conception of you know it's it's at night I'm in the day, et cetera, right? It, and so I would never be able to see it up close, even if I was a really good birder, it's hard to sort of come across these creatures. And so um, that felt to me very, well, real, right? I, I can see the beauty that is next to the brokenness. I can see the beauty that is um, in the prairie that is um, sco- scooped out of an invaded landscape um right that is a little bit here and there and so uh plotinus became useful to me to think through the problem i have right we can't access whatever that perfection is so what do we do um and how do we handle the fact that our experience of beauty is next to both what is um ugly or what is broken in some particular way but also um what is unintelligible, right? So if intelligible reality is kind of the beautiful thing, um, I'm, at, I'm after the unintelligible, <laughs> as we've been talking, right? <laughs> um, in the sense that, yeah. you know, the Lord Almighty, uh, right? Um, and the, the sort of beyondness. And I, I realize I'm playing fast and loose uh, with Latina's ideas <laughs> at this moment. Yeah, Not right. being classically <laughs> educated, but so my interest in his work um, is more as, a, as another person who's thinking about this, right, um,
0: mm-hmm. in
1: the tradition. I couldn't imagine. I also quoted Augustine in that chapter on that same point because I was thinking he wrote several books on beauty and lost them. Um, and yeah. the, the breathtakingness of that loss, the inaccessibility, right, of beauty at that point uh, felt just right poetically for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it, 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 I have to say, of all the things to quote from the confessions, the fact that you quoted uh, a, a section about his loss at works that, you know, I it was like, well, that was not what I expected. Well, you lost um,
1: before because of a computer crash or something like that. The feeling of utter gut wrenching loss.
0: Right. Yeah. Well, and some people, you know, I guess we could even surmise a little bit, like they were. I think maybe he largely found them unimportant. Um, like what what he was thinking at the time, yeah. I is w- was sort of like you know he wanted to move on from that. Um, and you know, because I I was thinking like you know Augustine and Plotinus, you know, of course he has a. I mean Augustine too has a kind of. Um, uh, how should we say um, a contentious relationship with Plotinus mm-hmm. um, because uh, you know Augustine believes that God created all things good um, and created the earth good yeah. um, and so uh, it's I mean in some ways, I could see Augustine mirroring you know some of what you 've said here, which is you, you know you talked about the the disparate worlds that you ha- that you sort of inhabit, but trying to want to see them as united and unified as 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 whole. Um, and I think that is, uh, Augustine as well. He, you know, has noticed some, some stuff that Plotinus seems to get right, that the Platonists seem to get right. But then when he reads scripture and what he understands from his own life, don't always match up perfectly with what he reads in, in the Platonists. Mm-hmm. I mean, for one, he realizes that his mom is wise, um, and the Platonists don't have a category for the wisdom of his mother because she's uneducated, mm-hmm. um, And and so, you know, so he has to kind of say, okay how is it that she can be wise and have knowledge um, in in a way that that uh, Plotinus doesn't and Plotinus can't understand? Um, And I think that this happens as well with, uh, you know, his seeing the beauty of the pairs and the beauty of creation. Um, You know, um, he he wants to see them simply just as beautiful and good. Um, and, um in their createdness and not, not sort of as a, as an accident, um, or, or a corruption, um, simpliciter, you know, um, but, uh, anyway, I don't know. Now I'm, I'm using, and this, I'm supposed to be interviewing you, but, uh, yeah, oh, I God. think, God. I think Augustine sure. may be a lot I'm closer in. to you. <laughs> yeah well uh but yeah I, I think I mean anyway i was I was uh that that section uh was really interesting to to sort of work through the the difficulty of seeing the the owl up close um i I was very I was very moved
1: well it was one of those situations where you suddenly recognize like this is a this is a really big moment and everything will go to the side because of this. One never gets three hours with an owl. Um, I mean, some people who have careers and such things, perhaps, but animal rescuers and so forth. Uh, but it was going to be amazing, and so it was. And it was all a process of being able to try and take Virgil's advice to pay attention, to pay attention, to pay attention. And it was surprisingly difficult. Uh, I modeled the, the essay uh, after... And loosely after Wallace Stevens, 13 ways of looking at a blackbird. And of course, there are 14 sections because there are not enough. Um, so, uh, you know, how, how do you get to be able to see it? Um, I had a phone, I had my mood, which was dark. Um, <laughs> I it was raining. raining, uh, the, the brokenness of the all itself, all the sort of business of the day and so on and so forth. I have poetry to look through as a lens. I have natural observation. I have philosophy as a lens to look through. I have theology to look through. Um, so what can help me to see? What can help me to see? Um, can I pay attention to this enough for meaning to arise, to seek an answer to that question about beauty, um, to find the way of the juxtaposition of beauty and brokenness to be not a cliche, but to be something true and meaningful that could have like workable outcomes in the farm itself.
0: Beautiful um the very the the last thing that i wanted to move on to um it sort of connects insofar as it it has to do with the sort of the life and the death the beauty and the ugliness the the sort of the stark reality of a farm i guess um is your section on the hallowed bee, um and uh, at first i I, I I had a hard time uh, tra- trying to uh, read through this. I was trying to figure out like exactly what was going on, and and perhaps it was difficult uh, even because. I was trying to read quickly. Okay. I'll be honest, <laughs> um, and, and uh, because I have a, a lot of stuff that I need to read, but it, I, I kind of actually once I got the hang of it, um, I appreciated it a lot more. Uh, but it was, uh, it was harder to get started, and and maybe actually that's to I think I think actually that's to its. Um, I, I use that as a positive uh, thing to its benefit um, because it forced me to slow down and figure out what exactly uh, is is going on here. And just one of the sections on the hallowed bee that I thought was, uh, like I said, even connects in a way to the owl passage we were just talking about, uh, but is also the starkness of living on the farm. A lot of this has to do with, uh, you know, you're weaving together um, the... Uh, some of the stuff that's going on in America, but also uh, just like the difficulties of being a farmer and maybe even especially a, a sort of first-time farmer. But this one was about using electric fences with goats. Um, Hallowed be, how the thing about electric fences is that any animal must, that, uh, must truly believe in the fence. How all along the magazines say it, or how all the magazines say it, how an animal must respect the fence Or how it must be culled immediately, how it's because uh, it will keep getting out, how it will be leading the flock or the herd away, how if they try to escape, it can lead to, quote, tragedy. And then you say, hallowed be, how cold is a euphemism for killed? and how it's not a very good one. Um and I think uh I you know as, as I read it, you know you're just trying to find a way to sort of sanctify to make hollowed um even a lot of very difficult things um that that are coming together and and then also mixing them in with the with the fence. Um but um yeah, I mean, just the the hard the hardness of being a farmer and you talk about, you know, having to kill one of 18 sheep um, if it doesn't respect your fence. And I, you know, one one little small thing is like in with with backyard chickens, if they start to eat the eggs, which one of ours did, that's like basically the only yeah. thing you can just call the, the hen that does it because there's no way to stop them. Um, and you're just like, that's it. But I only have, you know, mm-hmm. 11 uh, or however many. Yeah. 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 So I'll, I'll let you respond okay. to that. Well, for those
1: who <laughs> may not be as familiar with the text itself, the last chapter of Waddle um, was an attempt to write about theological questions of holiness. Um, and of course, the idea of holiness as... Um, the metaphor of a fence is a really interesting one considering the kind of uh, separation from outside inside that kind of holy of holies question right so what i did was i during covid built a wattle fence to think about holiness Um, and then i wrote the essay And the structure of the essay is that there are all these quotations and those are the kind of straight up and down pieces of the fence and then i put in the middle i kind of wove in and out of all of those um, quotations little bits of experience that i kind of cut out of our lives um, from the news from our farming experience and so forth and i made each of them, uh, hallowed be, right? Uh, like hallowed be thy name or whatever, but hallowed be, and then how, whatever. And, uh, there'd be mini little mini snippets of stories and so on. And you read one of those. So, um, by trying to think about or to put under hallowedness, each of those mini experiences, um, including my just frustration with the idea of calling, um, which we didn't do, right? Like we're supposed to do, but we couldn't like, how could, how could anyone think that way? Right. Um, but of course, as you say, there are some times it's on. Um, so as we move through the essay itself, I was arranging these theological maxims and, uh, thinkers ideas about holiness, um, with the very real dirty struggles. Um, especially when for example i think the, the kind of climax moment of that essay has to do with trying to get this one animal to get onto the trailer um to go mm-hmm. to be killed right uh, it was time uh for three our uh steer to be uh to be to be butchered and we didn't really know how to get a cow onto the trailer very well and we didn't have one of those fancy chutes that some people have you know we low tech farm and so we sort of went through the process over the course of several days and we we did not get that cow onto the trailer like we failed to do that and so thinking about that question uh, and even just the ethical concerns that are raised by the idea of it at all. Like here I am praying for this cow to go on the trailer because it's so important to us and our farm and our customers and so on. And like, here's an animal not wanting to do what it has a sense ought not be done. Right. <laughs> um, and so, uh, it's an important wrestling. How, how do the, the mundane parts of our lives engage with the holiness of the almighty? How dare we approach, um, with our compromise, with our whatever, right? And, and how, how yet are we able um, to be close, to come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need, right? Uh, so, yeah, so that's the essay itself. And it is difficult but, uh, to read, I mean, but I'm not at all personally bothered by that. Like, I actually think if we make it too easy, that's, that's the lying. Um, and I wanted to be as truthful to the question and to the seeking of the answer as possible.
0: Yeah. Well, like I said, I I uh I, th- I think it was it was actually helpful for me <laughs> um to to slow down and to you know to truly try to understand what was going on, which is also I mean, you know, and I guess uh, with a literary essay as m- m- these are, um you know, it it gets closer to poetry where I also have the same difficulty with poetry. Um I feel like my job is to read things as fast as possible um and,
1: <laughs> and, <laughs> and, <laughs> and <laughs> I was going to tell you a theologian.
0: No, but that's so no no no. I I, well I don't I don't love it. Um and like all the time. I mean you know I try. Well actually I try to have categories of things things that I read slowly and things that I read quickly. Um and usually if I'm going to talk to an author about a book, a lot of these are more um you know academic monographs and I'm trying to read them a lot quicker.
1: Makes total sense. (laughs)
0: Um. So uh, but yeah but it, it but it is it's like I mean that's the the practice of learning to read poetry um is you know okay I'm going to have to read this a couple times um and uh maybe more um before it will ever uh you know really sp- sink in a- in a powerful way so uh like I say I think that that's too it's good I was I didn't mean that oh, as a as a course. criticism
1: <laughs> no it's an honor for anyone to spend time with this book um, in a way that takes my breath away. Um, My uncle Roger reading the book um, just really, really moved me, for example. And um, I don't take it lightly any moment, that's for sure. But I do think that I, I have noticed my own attentiveness breaking apart in the last decade or so. And I think poetry can help us all with that. And I, you know, I think it takes support sometimes, right? In the sense that, like, reading something with other people, reading poems with other people, especially, can really help. In my classes, we get into a community space, kind of neighborhood, and we can really help each other. So I like that, um, and it helps me feel grounded again in the word.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, wow, that is that's very beautiful. Well, I don't want to take too much uh, more of your time. Um, so it's I we're we're running up on, on an hour here. Do you have time for like some really specific questions about your oh, farm? Sure. So okay, so you like so are you trying to do silvo pasture with the is that is that right with the the well you're using the sheep to clear out the underbrush and then maybe do an oak silvo pasture? Yeah.
1: So we raise. Um... We raise pigs in the woods, um, and then sheep come into the woods in the summer to work on honeysuckle. Um, the what we're kind of trying to do we have since we have a mixture of forest and fields, is kind of um, be with the land in its specificity as best as possible. So I raise a lot of uh, vegetables. We have um, an orchard, a permaculture orchard that's just been. Um, planted in the last couple of years. And so we're learning and developing there, failing and developing, failing and developing. Um, And then the grazing animals kind of go in and out. The forest, um, we're probably, like it's really heavily walnut right now in a way that suggests that Mm. there might be too much walnut for what used to be an oak, bur oak probably, savanna. And so Mm. we're in the process of kind of thinking through what's our best course or responsibility to the land's history with regard to the walnut, with regard to the honeysuckle and so on. It's too much for the sheep. That, um, hmm. that, and honeysuckle is just a really amazingly um, regenerative. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so I wouldn't say that that much headway has been made. Um, though, they, okay. though it's producing lots of great sheep, um uh I have hope for the forest but we haven't gotten enough wisdom about that one yet.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting um yeah I, I i've i've read stuff about it i was just curious and i i have not seen like I, i've heard people talk about it but i've not seen many examples of it sort of becoming to fruition like i've seen people talk about it um but uh i yeah i was just curious if you had had any had any success converting it to it because i oh. like i said i don't think i've seen a whole lot of people i like uh i, I don't know yeah. I've, I've never seen a like a a a great example of it. I don't I don't I just have heard yeah, about well, it. Well, it's
1: it's I mean we're doing it, right? Um but the challenge uh-huh. for us is that moving electric fences in the woods is super uh, difficult. Yeah. So what you need is more yeah. infrastructure to get better pathways for fencing so that you could have more semi-permanent um little paddocks or whatever paddocks. In, in between but it's in between trees and things, right? So you have to get a way around that. Um so that's one challenge. And also because it's so difficult to move the fences right now, you you gotta constantly guard against overgrazing um the sort of tender forest floor plants. Mm. There's plenty of honeysuckle, but you gotta cut it down for the animals. So like mm. if they overdo it, you know, those ferns, they take a lot longer to get going and so on. So um so it's you gotta move them fast through. Um so it's it's a very labor intensive, inefficient way. I mean, but efficient I mean <laughs> like efficiency is part of what we're guarding against right. Um but let's not be stupid either, kind of thing. So
0: yeah. And then and then you do the uh do you guys run chicken tractors? Do you are you guys like do you do the Joel Salatin what, thing? Yep.
1: Um in fact my husband studied with Joel Salatin at his pork pasture school one time in a little couple week um workshop uh, when he was an intern uh, with Hasselman family farms and that was great experience. And so um, we have different poultry houses that go around the main pasture and it's for real. the, the sort of trail behind where the chickens go um, is bright green with life so it's a it's remarkable. Uh-huh.
0: And you do that, and then you do your your cows, your steer in that same uh in that same area where you're doing the chickens. Uh,
1: you know, very it varies. Um, since the cows move all over, uh, it kind of depends. Um, I think he's got this great system where it's like first the cows, and then the chickens, and then the whatever. Right? He has this uh, all set. Um, we're a little bit more haphazard. Um, <laughs> you know, there's some overlap there depending on the season, et cetera.
0: Yeah. Well, my, yeah. So, uh, like I said, as listeners uh, would know, I've, uh, I'm, I'm always really curious when people are a- able to do that and able to do it with success. Cause I'm always eyeing properties about 30, 45 minutes from SLU. Um, like, okay, could we, uh, you know, could we make something like this work, but well, be um, because I'm, a
1: lot more audiobooks, uh, scholarly audiobooks are coming out. Yale university press and others have really been working to make good nerdy books accessible via audio. And that's the way you get through a commute like that. So
0: good to hear. Good to hear. Well, um, I really do appreciate your time, and and I don't want to take too much of it. So, because um, I, you, you got two, you've got two vocations at least, and your we didn't talk. I think you have, you mentioned your children, so you, you know, you have more than enough going on. I really appreciate you taking uh, uh, to, an hour of your time to to talk with me about of your course. book. Of course,
1: it's a delight, and I thank you so much for reading it.
0: All right, so I just.